0: welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I do hope that you're bearing up under these incredibly difficult circumstances we're living through. Uh, But I'm delighted to say that this week my guest is someone I'm sure you're very familiar with already. Dave Rubin is host of The Rubin Report. It was started in 2015. It's probably the most watched show when it comes to issues of free speech and political philosophy on YouTube. It has one point 2 million subscribers and something like 260 million views now Dave has got a new book out this week it's just just come out it's called don't burn this book thinking for yourself in an age of unreason don't burn this book he's here to talk to me now from Los Angeles Uh, thank you very much for joining us Dave
1: Peter, it's good to be with you. You know, it's kind of unfortunate that we have to do all these via the pipes these days and Skype and Zoom and the rest of it. I was looking forward to being on tour in Europe and having some London stops and everything else. And hopefully when this all ends, we'll be able to do it. But in the meantime, we're sort of trapped in this digital can that we're stuck in. <laughs> are
0: you, uh, how are you uh, handling the lockdown? I mean, we're still pretty much in it here. Um, but uh, how is it working out for you personally?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm here in Los Angeles, and we are very much in it. Just last night, I saw that our progressive governor Gavin Newsom has now ordered that all of the beaches in California be closed. Um, you know, we've had our, our mayor here, Eric Arcetti, who also is a progressive, uh, you know, talk about snitching on neighbors, if you see them doing something that they're not supposed to do relative to the lockdown. So, you know, I would say for me personally, I have a home studio. As you know, this is my garage. I was a little ahead of the game. You know, now when we watch CNN anchors and everybody else broadcasting out of their kitchens, yeah. my operation is is pretty solid. We had to put a satellite on the roof to make sure our internet's okay. Um, but my my team is working really, really hard. And, you know, we're just fine at the moment. Uh, but that being said, look, there's uh, there's obviously there's sickness out there. There's there's death. The numbers have not been what everyone predicted them to be, which is fantastic. And perhaps that's because we put a lot of these measures in place. But, you know, as we roll into now seven or eight weeks with most of America trapped at home, we do have to start talking about opening up. And, you know, in America, we have a slightly different way about doing things than most of the world, because we do have a federalist system here where the states are allowed, not only allowed, the states are supposed to make decisions for themselves. So California and New York, you know, these with huge urban areas, uh, with progressive, mostly lefty governors and mayors, they're going to do things very differently than, say, Texas or Montana, places that have, you know, much more sparse populations. And uh, I'm, I'm a little worried about where I am here because, you know, it seems like we've done a really nice job of quashing this thing. And then yet still we find. There, there doesn't see, you know, they told us May 15th it'll end in May yeah. May fifteenth But I, I don't see that happening right now. And I certainly don't see it happening for everybody. I mean, maybe they'll let a few more people out and the rest of it. But we, we have to start living. And, and the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, the unfortunate part of this is we're, we're not that good at discussing difficult issues. In many ways, that's what my book is about. Yeah. And one of the difficult issues we have to discuss is, you know, as we start opening things up, it may cause a bit of a second wave. It may cause, you know, people of a certain age, usually 80 and above uh, to be at a higher risk than they are right now when they're locked at home. But at the end of the day, we have to weigh that risk versus freedom, versus liberty, versus our ability to literally walk outside of our homes. That's a very uncomfortable conversation. And just in the last few days, my my friend Ben Shapiro got in a lot of trouble uh, for talking about that. Because we don't talk about serious issues uh, very well, you know. Instead, it's like, oh, well, until nobody is going to be at risk, then we should stay at home. And of course, that's not—that's not, exactly. that's not yeah. really how a functioning society can operate.
0: I mean, you mentioned there Ben Shapiro getting in, into a bit of trouble. I mean, here we have a kind of media—a media, media narrative—and if you have—if you have a dissenting view, and there are people who dissent, and I suppose, well, what would you say that dissenting view is? It is essentially. For many of them it is this idea that the cure is is worse than the than the illness in a nutshell i mean is that strong in in the states do you have dissenting voices i mean and how prominent are they
1: well fortunately like like you guys we have a strong history of dissenting voices and for now we don't we don't quash those voices by the government uh, you know, Twitter mobs try to quash those voices, yeah. and you know a lot of a lot of blue check journalists—and I put air quotes around—usually when I say the word journalist—try yeah. uh, to quash those voices. But in effect, what Ben said about this is really what I just said. He actually said it on my live stream when we were promoting my book. And you know, it's funny because so much of my book is about how to stand up to outrage culture. Yeah. And here Ben comes on and he says, as I said, something that we all know to be true. We just, this is what an actuary does, right? When you're getting insurance, an actuary has to weigh the risks and your age and your behavior and all of these things versus the price that you're gonna pay for your policies. We all know this is reality. Um, So I would say we do have a very strong, we have not only a strong history of dissenting voices, um, but I do think our dissenting voices are getting a little louder at the moment. Uh, What I'm seeing right now in California is a lot of people are saying, You know, it's it's time, at least you don't have to open everything up tomorrow in the exact same way it used to be. Right. But perhaps perhaps we could start opening up shopping malls and say that, you know, only half the amount of people that could go in before could go in now that you have to wear a mask when you're in there. I mean, we have to have a mature conversation about this. Mm. And and we need dissenting voices to do that. One of the things that I'm worried about is that in general and why I said in the book, you know, thinking for yourself is that it's it we seem to have this idea that just because the who says something or just because a governor says something that that automatically is true and i'm not saying that they're all corrupt i'm not saying that they're all evil or misguided or any of those things but just because an authority figure says something doesn't make it true so we need to to fight that out let's not forget that you know, it's only, what, about six weeks ago that the WHO was telling us not to wear masks. Yeah. So yeah. these people these people have made errors, just like you've made errors, just like mm-hmm. I've made errors. And we need, to, we need to strengthen our resolve to really figure out what's going on here.
0: I mean, is it, you, you, you mentioned the WHO, and but I, I think generally speaking, there's been a, a decline in confidence in our institutions. I, I, I'm sure it's the same there. But that includes the media, should I say the mainstream media, uh, which here has seen... A plummeting in public trust. Has that been the same really in in the States?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think you guys are seeing a very similar phenomenon to what we're dealing with here. You know, it's funny because every time someone asks me some version of this question, um, I think the reason that you're asking is because you probably see me railing against the media often. And as I had to use air quotes when I said journalists before. But what I always qualify that uh, by is that I would prefer that the mainstream media not crumble. I actually am a person that does believe we need institutions. I believe we do need trusted voices. And what I always say every time I you know, hit somebody at the New York Times or CNN, and I try not to go after the people specifically. I try to go after the ideas that they're presenting, yeah. or, or I should say the misinformation that they're presenting. I always qualify it by saying, you know, I wish that you guys weren't this bad. And in, in fact, you don't have to be perfect. Nobody expects perfect. And in many cases, most of us don't expect decent anymore. But just don't be terribly horrible. Don't be, <laughs> don't be blatant liars. Don't put a headline up that I have to read the article to realize that the headline doesn't match the article. Don't ignore a story for weeks, because let's say it goes against Joe Biden where we know if it was against Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, that's one of the things we're dealing with right now. Sexual assault allegations. When they go against the conservative, we run with them. They're on the cover of everything for weeks. When they go against the Democrat, we hide them. We put them on page 23. We ignore them. And in the book, I lay out four types of fake news. And actually, you know, we always think that fake news is just made up stories. But a new pernicious type of fake news is when they just ignore things. Yes. So when you ask me about, when you ask me about mainstream media, it's like, I don't want all of these things to crumble. I I truly mean this. If tomorrow there was a meeting at the New York Times or at CNN and they cleared some of the brush, they said, we're going to remove some of the ideologically driven stuff that we're putting in here. Uh, we're going to have more varied voices and the rest of it. I would be thrilled, even if that came at the expense of my career and my voice in the midst of all of this, I, I truly would, I'll, I'll find something else to do, that'll be just fine. Um, but, I, but unfortunately, I think you know this, when these institutions start to crumble, and, and I, I think there's a reason for this, once they sort of let social justice in there, which in many ways is, is anti-human, You know, social justice, this idea that we should judge each other based on our sexuality or our skin color or our gender, once you let this into a system, it's, it's very much like a virus. A virus is very easy to catch and very hard to get rid of. And I think we've seen it inject itself in many of our colleges. We've seen it inject itself in many of our uh, journalistic institutions. And that's why they start crumbling. They this is in many ways. It's very sad for me because, you know, my book is a defense of classical liberalism, which especially you guys have a wonderful defense of, I would say in certain ways better than America. Um, But I'm watching right now most liberal institutions crumble while some of the conservative ones seem to be able to stand up to this.
0: Yes, I I think it's it's, it's absolutely right. I mean, here in in Britain, we have the BBC, which has a legal obligation to be impartial. Um, And very few people now, or at least uh, the people I know, uh, can sort of actually claim that it is impartial. It's it's almost blatant. Um, With your new book, uh, Dave, it, it's, 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 I, I, I loved it. I mean, I'm, I'm about halfway through. Uh, it seems to me that it's very much a kind of... It's a sort of survival manual in some ways. Or it, it's Who are you aiming it at? Well, it's interesting because when I, I start the book
1: by saying this, but when I, when I got the original deal, uh, when I signed it, yeah, it was supposed to be why I left the left. That was going to be the title of the book. And, and it's a phrase that's been attached to me because I did a PragerU video That I think has around 20 million views, where I talked about leaving the left, even though within the video itself, I had never said I left the left. Um, And I really, at that time, this is about four or five years ago, I really felt I was trying to fix the left from the inside. I was trying to say to my liberal friends, hey, guys, there's something wrong with us. We're not defending free speech anymore. We're not defending open inquiry anymore. We're, We're silencing dissent. There's something wrong with us on the left. And I started writing that book for about three weeks. And then I suddenly realized that I didn't want to write a book about what I was against. I wanted to write a book about what I was for. And this book really, I think what I'm doing is not only laying out my classically liberal positions on things and and really the philosophy of classical liberalism, which, by the way, I think most people inherently are classical liberals, they just don't know it. Right. You know, it sounds, like, it sounds like something old, you're a classical liberal, it sounds like you're from the 1700s or something like that. And that really is where the roots of classical liberalism started with the Enlightenment. But, but in effect, classical liberalism believes in two things effectively. You believe in individual rights, meaning if you are a member of any society, if you're a legal member of a society, you have equal rights, that's it. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or gay or straight or what, what your national origin is or anything else. You have equal rights. Now that doesn't mean everything in life is going to be equal. It doesn't yeah. mean an equality of outcome. And that's where people, at least the modern progressives, seem to get hung up. All it means is that the world is giving you a starting point in terms of laws. Now you might work harder than somebody else. You might be luckier. You might be born into more money or into less money or the litany of things that, that make life life. And then it's, it's kind of on you. But but individual rights, I think, are the great leveler in a society. Right. That That's that's the first part. And then the second part, which is very simple, is the light touch of government, that you don't want government doing everything. And in most cases, I think, you want to exhaust the private sector until you turn to government. So let's see if, you know, even right now with Corona, like, what, what have we seen happen? Well, we've seen people like Mike Lindell from MyPillow transform his factory to make 50,000 yep. masks a day. We've seen really interesting human ingenuity from the private sector. Now, that's not to say the government doesn't have to do anything. Of course, it has to do certain things, um, but that you would want to do as much possibly outside of the government. And, and I think that's really how most of us, if we if we sat back for a moment and thought about how our lives are and what kind of lives we want to live, I think that's actually the lens that most of us would use yeah. to, to flourish. Yeah. Um, so I would say this book is really for, it's for anyone... That wants to think a little bit differently than mainstream is pushing them to think. So, listen, there are things in this book that are going to piss off everybody. You know, obviously, mostly people on the right, conservatives and libertarians like me at the moment. But I make a case. I make a pro-choice argument in this book. That is, that is a major no-no for conservatives. Yeah. Um, yet I, yet I take that position. Obviously, I take plenty of positions that are against, you know, progressive orthodoxy of the day. But the real point of the book, and I I say this in here, is I am not telling you what to think. I am really not. I have no doubt, Peter, that if we talk for hours, we could find a whole bunch of stuff we disagree on, right? But in a free society, you should actually relish that you live with people who think differently than you. I don't care what my neighbor thinks specifically about politics, as long as his politics don't suddenly infringe on my property, on my life. If he was doing things politically that were going to take away my rights, we have a problem. If he felt he could just walk onto my property and do whatever he wants, we have a problem. But beyond that, I think most people want to live and let live. And unfortunately, between the media and the political establishment, we've sort of been just tricked into thinking that everyone's business is our business. And I I just don't believe that.
0: But also, isn't it the case, uh, Dave, that, you know, people here, uh, it's the same in America, I'm sure, but they feel a real sense of oppression, that sort of, I'm not allowed to say what I think, you know, that somehow or other, there is this orthodoxy now, which is pretty much kind of uh, set up by various parts of the establishment and the various institutions. And if you go against that, then there's hell to pay. So... In your book, you are quite specific. You, you give practical pointers to people, don't you? I know mean, one of them is you say uh, to people who might feel beleaguered, you say, get a mentor, for example. Yeah. Now, can you describe you know, what that would be? What do you mean by that?
1: Sure. So this was actually it's chapter nine in the book, yeah. and it was one of the last one of the last chapters that I wrote. You probably know this when you're when you're writing a book. Uh, often, you know, the editors move things around. So I, I wrote oh, yes. what they told me was a pretty, a pretty clean copy for the first round. And then one of the few things that the editor had to do was actually move some chapters around. So what started at what now is chapter one, actually, I think was chapter four, when we started chapter nine was a little bit earlier. And I mentioned that because in chapter nine, I talk about how Jordan Peterson became my mentor and for your audience that doesn't know Jordan, although you know, oh, they do. They do.
0: Because, of course, you toured with him. You toured for two years with him, didn't you? Yeah,
1: Yeah, we toured for almost two years. We did about 120 stops in about 20 countries. We did several stops in the UK, which were were some of my favorite. Um, And in essence, what I'm trying to lay out in that chapter is it's very hard for any of us to just map a future without some people who have done it before us. It's very hard for us to just say, well, this is what I want in life, I'm gonna go get it, and no one else should have anything to do with that. And my relationship with Jordan, in many ways was accidental. When I, it's hard for people to remember, but Jordan wasn't always this worldwide phenomenon. And when, and years ago, I mean, this was, uh, I believe in 2016, when he started coming on the map. So this is the fall of 2016, if I'm not mistaken. I had him on the show and it was before we were, we had just moved into this house. I didn't have a studio yet. We did a Google hangout. The internet connection was terrible and I'm talking to him and I didn't really know who he was other than Twitter. And I talked to him for about an hour and I thought he was brilliant and yet he was also crying while talking about Pinocchio. And I I ended the interview and I thought, wow, this guy is either the most brilliant thinker I have ever spoke to without question or he's completely crazy. And then subsequently over the next year, I fortunately became friends with him, and he, you know, this is before we toured together. Uh, and I interviewed him many times in person, and we did public speaking together and the rest of it. And I saw a man take his life's work as a clinical psychologist and write this book, 12 Rules for Life, that then actually transformed the world. When I tell you that in every single country that we went to, every single stop, Thousands of people were sitting in that crowd. And by the way, you know the, the, the mainstream media take on this was that it was angry white young men oh, yes, who show yes. up to Jordan Peterson shows. And I assure you that was not the case. Yeah, yeah. Now, by the way, if it was the case that it was all angry young men and he was helping them, well then actually that would be a good thing. The media struggles with that concept, but, but it wasn't. I would say it was about 60, 40 male to female, but there were gay people there. There were Muslims and Jews and blacks and whites. I mean, the whole thing, right? And what I saw this man do is, by his words, he changed people's lives. He got people to get in better relationships, to get off drugs, to end porn addictions, to reconnect with family members. Uh, one, I tell a couple stories about him in the book, but one I'll tell you very briefly. We were in Dublin, and uh, when you end these theater shows, you know, obviously as the performer, you yeah. can't walk out the front because most likely you're going to be mobbed right. by people. Yeah. So there's usually a little side exit. We exit the 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 theater and we had had a very long day where he's doing a ton of press he gives a different hour and a half lecture every night i mean it was just incredible you know he says hello he stops to shake hands with every single person i never saw him be rude to anyone you know anything like that we we get into this alleyway and there's these two guys standing about 20 feet away from us and they start walking to us and they're both crying and one of them is probably about 60 the other one's probably about 25 something like that and it turns out that they were a father and son who had lost touch about five years. They had a falling out about five years before. And by coincidence, they had both bought the book, started fixing their lives, showed up to the show and saw each other and reconnected. Yeah. And they stood there hugging each other, crying. Jordan began to tear up, I began to tear up. I thought, I thought this is incredible. This oh. This is so much bigger than just politics or just the culture war or anything else. So I would say to answer your question about a mentor, through osmosis, I just got a lot of that messaging. Mm -hmm. It's not that Jordan sat me down like it was like a a Jedi Knight and a Padawan learner. You know, it wasn't like we sat down like that. It was just being around this thing. Uh, I'm a better person. I'm not a perfect person, but I'm a better person.
0: Do you think, I mean, we're talking obviously about woke politics and identity politics, all these things that make people feel, as you put it in the book, you know, oh my God, you know, they're calling me a Nazi or whatever, and I'm not a Nazi. Um, you know, do you think that, I know this is a question that's being asked a lot, Dave, but with this virus, you know, some people are saying, oh, well, that's it, it's gone. It's gone off the front page. It's gone off the, off the media. Um, maybe we will, you know, we will go on now and realize that this is all a load of, load of rubbish. Do you think that's, ha- that's going to happen or not?
1: Well, I think that would be wonderful. And I, I think see, it is I think happening.
0: I think yeah, it's kind of we entrenched. need it to happen.
1: Yeah, right. We need it to happen. We all know it should happen. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing right now, and th- this is why you're asking the question, is when something really bad happens, when we now have an unprecedented worldwide pandemic, when we ha- are watching record levels of unemployment, we're watching, quite literally, people die, family members die, I think suddenly people are going... You know, all that stuff about gender pronouns yeah, and yeah. sexuality and all of these things, they don't matter. They, yeah. they actually don't matter. And I'm not saying that means suddenly you should be bigoted towards people. Of course not. But they've created a certain set of superfluous issues that in many ways just show how fabulously wonderful the West has done things. Yeah. We've become so fat on our own success that we can suddenly debate whether the government should punish someone yeah. for misgendering somebody. Yeah. Um, and you guys, I've, I've seen this, you know, I think it's from the Sussex police or something where they suddenly put out these things that if someone offends you, you might want to report it to us. I mean, these are, these are really dangerous ideas. Oh yes. Um, yeah. So we've, we've seen plenty of that. So look, I think at the end of the day, when you, when you're in a time of crisis right now, um, suddenly people are going, you know, whoever solves, whoever gives us the antidote, uh, to coronavirus, I don't care if it's a man or a woman or if they're black or white or gay or straight or the rest of it. If I'm getting on a plane, do I care what uh, gender or sexuality or anything else that the, that the person who's flying the plane, the pilot is, other than that they are the best qualified person to fly the plane? If I'm having heart surgery tomorrow, do I want the best Asian doctor, white doctor, or black doctor, or I just want the best doctor? Mm. And I think we have to, we have to start framing it like that because we all know it to be true. Yeah. If you had a medical problem tomorrow, And then they showed you a whole bunch of doctors and they said, you know, these people all have different qualifications, but some of them, their immutable characteristics rank really high. And you're going, well, I just want the best doctor because I I don't want to die on the table. Uh, You're most likely going to be colorblind. And that, by the way, is exactly what Martin Luther King Jr. wanted, right? What did he want for his children? He wanted them not to be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So I'm very hopeful that that we will get past this. That being said, it really... It's a virus. It's a it's a virus of the mind, and it gets in the system, and it's very hard to eliminate. So I don't think it's gone, but I do think right now it's it's pretty neutered.
0: I think uh, one difference maybe between uh, America and, and uh, in Britain is that we have hate speech laws, for example, which is part of this. Um, whereas you know you are in, to a great extent defended by the constitution I mean you know there is a big difference we don't have that so we have the whole new rafter of laws makes it very very difficult um one thing I want to ask you about the book as well uh Dave which struck me is that it's dedicated to Ben Affleck and (laughs) (laughs) I know why but I think maybe some people watching will not can you why we're talking about the Hollywood actor Ben Affleck why have you dedicated it to him (laughs)
1: <laughs> sure. So to be clear, I don't know Ben Affleck. I've never met Ben Affleck. I've seen a lot of Ben Affleck movies. But uh, why did I devote, uh, dedicate the book to Ben Affleck? Well, there's a very famous moment that I think was the political wait- awakening for many people and really was a, was a truly, truly seminal moment in my life and certainly in my career. Uh, this is about four or five years ago. Uh, ben Affleck was a panelist on Real Time with Bill Maher. And I really- when I say panelist, meaning. He was one of the three people on the opposite side of the table where they, you know, that's where they debate the hot topics of the day. And then usually what they do on real time is they bring on another guest who sits on the same side of the table as Bill Maher. And that person has sort of a protected interview, meaning it's really more of a one-on-one. On On that night, uh, a mild-mannered neuroscientist named Sam Harris, who I did not know of at the time, uh, he sat down with Bill Maher and they they were there to discuss his book called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion, which I have right over there. And it's basically a book about how to find inner peace. And as they were discussing it, the topic of religion came up because Sam has been very outspoken. He's an outspoken critic of all religions with with bar none, with no exceptions. And obviously Bill Maher is a a huge critic of religion. And what they started discussing was that we have to be able to separate ideas and people. Now, this is a, a concept that we all know, but we have trouble understanding in many cases. So ideas meaning you should be able to criticize any set of ideas, but that doesn't mean you should be bigoted towards people who might hold those ideas. So in other words, you should be able to criticize the Old Testament and nobody would think you're automatically a hater of all Jews. You should be able to criticize the New Testament. Nobody would run around saying you hate all Christians. And likewise, you should be able to criticize the set of ideas that is the Quran and you shouldn't hate all Muslim people as people, you would wanna judge people individually. Mm. This is actually a very simple idea, uh, but for some reason it's very hard for people to understand. The way I would give you a a metaphor to this is that religious doctrine is just a set of ideas, the same way a political party's doctrine is a set of ideas. So you could could criticize everything in the Republican party platform or the labor party platform. That doesn't mean you hate all members of the labor party. So this is a very important idea and, and an important distinction. And in effect, as they were talking about this relative to Islam, Ben Affleck turned to Bill Maher and Sam Harris. And the the famous line is he said that they are gross and racist. Mm. And he was also sort of, he was huffing and puffing and red in the face and kind of banging his hands on the table and very angry. And the reason that this was a wake up moment for me was at the time I was still a big lefty. I was on the Young Turks network. But for about a year, I had been sort of trying to piece this thing together in my mind. And we all have some version of this where you know something's not right, but you can't quite piece it all together. And then something happens where you go, ah, that's it. Mm-hmm. And, and this was the perfect example for me because I had been thinking for about a year that it couldn't be that all of our intellectual opponents were racists and bigots and homophobes. It, it couldn't possibly be that we were so morally right and they were so morally wrong. It, it was just, the, the equation was just too easy. It, it just couldn't be. But I didn't have like the perfect example of what I was talking about. And then to watch this A-list actor just scream and emote. Mm. But in essence, what he was doing, what he was saying was not true. I mean, no one in their right mind, Bill Maher, I mean, this is a guy who for 30 years in America has been our most outspoken liberal, our most outspoken lefty. He has taken every lefty cause known to man. The idea that anyone would say Bill Maher is a racist Mm. is crazy, but what I saw happen right after that was suddenly all of the media was suddenly saying Bill Maher is a racist and Sam Harris is a racist, yeah. even though they said they said nothing racist. Yeah. And and by watching that, and by the way, as I said, I know I know that truly thousands and thousands, if not millions, of people were woken up by that moment because it was just so obvious. Uh, so I thank Bill, uh, Ben Affleck actually because if it wasn't for him doing that that yes, highly yes. emotive, energetic, you know, faux moralism, I don't know that I would have woken up as quickly as I did.
0: I mean, you, 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 you've you got this phenomenal following, uh, obviously, Dave, but, you know, there you are in Los Angeles. You In some ways, this sort of capital <laughs> of virtue signaling, isn't it? I mean, Ben Affleck's just one example, because that's what he was really doing, wasn't it, in, in that instance? Yeah, it's I, virtue signaling. I mean, is, is it tough, I mean, you know, if, if you are not in that mainstream view? I mean, I lived there, as you know, for a while, and I think I met one Republican, I think, and he was an agent. Uh, That was a, you know, that's all I met in in the whole time I was there. Um, You know, it's an
1: interesting question because, you know, virtue signaling is an interesting thing because it's what you do outward. It isn't necessarily what you believe inwardly. And, you know, Hollywood, for as, as messed up as Hollywood is and all the problems with Hollywood, the good thing about Hollywood is you know the cream does tend to rise to the top so if you have a good show eventually it will break out if you have a good stand up routine eventually it'll break out whatever it might be that's what competition's all about so in many ways even though these people pretend to be these these crazy progressives in another way they live actually much more like libertarians they they want to be free they want to make their money spend it freely and all of those things i think that i think that's actual virtue by the way yeah. i don't think the faux moralization is virtue Um, But in terms of how how it is living here, I mean, well, first off, you know, I don't know if this is good for the country or the world, but we are watching politics and government collide into one thing. So uh, so, I'm sorry, not politics and government, politics and entertainment collide into Mm -hmm. one thing. And as that happens, L.A. is the home of entertainment. Mm -hmm. So you know, suddenly uh, Ben Shapiro, who we mentioned, he's here in L.A. uh, Dennis Prager here, and Prager U is in L.A. uh, Peter Thiel, the tech billionaire, he left San Francisco because he said, you know, the progressive group think is so dangerous and he fled to Los Angeles. I mean, that tells you <laughs> that, that something decent must be happening here. Yes. But, but I would say the bigger barometer for me is that, you know, when I walk my dog right now and you know, it's really the only time that I get out of the house, the amount of people who, neighbors now, who say hi to me and they'll say, oh, I saw you on Fox News last night, or oh, I saw you on the Ben Shapiro show yesterday. And what they're really saying to me is, I'm one of you
0: too. Yes.
1: You know, it's like they, they wouldn't run around. They wouldn't plaster it anywhere. They wouldn't want it on Facebook. But I'm seeing more and more and more of that. So in that way, I am enthused. Uh, but to bring it around to where we started here about California in general, I mean, look, they are, as we speak, they are now making it illegal to close the beaches. So I, I am certainly not thrilled with my state at the moment.
0: No, no. Where do you think this is going to go, uh, Dave? I mean, you've been hugely successful with your show, but, but you know, obviously it's the as the mainstream um, broadcast networks decline in influence, I mean, what do you see in 10 years time? What do you think that there are just going to be many more shows like like yours or like this one here or or, or, or what do you see the future for people who maybe want an alternative? Will it just be YouTube? Well, I love this. Look, look, look exactly at what we're doing right now. We're trying
1: to have an honest conversation with important questions, relevant issues, and the rest of it. If we were doing this on the BBC, or if we were doing this on CNN or anywhere else, you know, they'd have eight boxes with people who mostly who have never accomplished anything, or they worked for campaigns or something like that. And you wouldn't feel any better at the end. You know, that's what I always tell people when you watch CNN, do you feel better after? Do you actually feel more enlightened after? Now, I'm not saying every show that I've ever done is the most brilliant enlightening thing ever but i think for the most part if if you watch an hour long interview that i do you'll you'll take something away from it i know that every single interview i've done i've taken something away sometimes you know i take away some great ideas but sometimes i go wow that person really didn't know what they were saying and you you can learn something through that yeah. so as far as as far as watching the sort of online media grow and the mainstream media crumble i mean i think in many ways the online media has already surpassed yes. mainstream yes. Media. you know yeah. I, I probably, on a, on a per show basis, get more views than primetime CNN. And not only that, I do it at a fraction of the cost. I would say what it costs to do one night of Anderson Cooper with all the studio lights and the staff and the whole thing is probably the whole year of my shows. I mean, we've figured out a way to make a sleek, nimble, profitable. We have no debt, you know, nice small business, which is totally congruent with all of my sort of libertarian ideas. I pay my guys really well because they work hard for me. We gave my guys all bonuses in the midst of coronavirus because I want them to be to feel valued and I want them to keep working hard and the rest of it. Right. Uh, but that's on, that's on me to do, not on the government to force me to pay them a certain amount or something like that. So I think we've already seen the online things surpass mainstream media. And in many ways, that's why mainstream media is so hysterical at the moment. You know, yeah, they, they know there is... They know they're a sinking ship yeah. in many ways, I liken it. you lived in l a to the La Brea tar pits where you can go here, and that's where <laughs> you know the dinosaurs the dinosaurs would get caught in the tar, and some of the smarter dinosaurs, you know what they do? the smarter ones instead of jumping right into the tar, they would sometimes jump on a dinosaur to get across the other way and I think that's really sort of what's happening right now. Um, that being said, you know, I am worried because you know look. We do this on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, and you know, big tech could in effect shut any of us down whenever they want. Uh, I have all sorts of issues with
0: that. Yes, so we, we do of, have to be what, wary. What have you had there? I mean, you've, you've had some demonetization, things like that, or what, or shadow banning? Yeah, you
1: know, well, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, yeah. Twitter in their terms of service, in effect has shadow banning. So, so shadow banning is when you follow somebody And you just don't see their tweets. They just don't appear in your feed. Now, in their terms of service as of January 1st this year, at least from an American perspective, I actually think it might be different in the UK or in Europe, uh, they're allowed to shadow ban. They can throttle certain accounts and promote certain accounts. Now, I'm not telling them as a business they can't do that, right? I mean, they can do what they want. But we should all be aware that as we tweet things out and as we put videos on Facebook and YouTube and the rest of it, we're all playing a fixed game and we're pretending that it's not fixed. It's like you know, if we were playing uh, basketball or cricket and one, one team had one set of rules and the other team had another set of rules, but we all pretended it was the same rules, mm. this would be a bit of a problem, right? Mm. So I- I'm worried that big tech could sort of take any of us out all the time. And by the way, because I try to do things and not just talk about them, uh, this is why I started in the last year, I started my own tech company, Locals.com, to build digital homes for creators where you can own your content. We don't own user data. Um, it's, it's a really beautiful system that I think we've solved 95% of the problems for 95% of the people. And if any of your viewers or listeners want to check it out, RubenReport.com is the first project of Locals. And we have a totally troll-free environment. We have no There's no deplatforming on Locals because if, if you come into my local and you're just there to wreck havoc, I can kick you out But you can still be in anyone else's local. And by the way, that's not an infringement on free speech, because just like I'm for anyone saying whatever they want outside of my house, I don't welcome everybody into my house to say whatever they want. So I think we have to start dealing with these issues in a mature way. And I do see a new Internet sort of on the horizon. Internet 3.0, I think, is what a lot of people are calling it. Um, But I don't think people like us should should pretend that our problems have been solved just because the mainstream media is kind of crumbling right now. I think we still have we still have a lot of problems on the horizon.
0: Your your company again is called locals.com, is that right?
1: So locals.com Locals. Locals. is the is the parent company, okay. and our our first product, in effect, if people want to see it, yeah. is RubenReport.com. And we build iOS apps and we build Android apps. And again, you it's every creator sets your rules. It's mm-hmm. your own rules, it's your community. It's sort of like building your own country and if you want to associate with other people you can and if you don't, you, you won't. Yeah. And again, there's no perfect system. I think a lot of people are sort of looking like we can somehow build a social network that is an absolute perfect system for everybody and I, I just don't think that exists. So I think by doing something that's creator first, uh, that's the, that's the way to do it.
0: Um, we're going to sort of finish uh, shortly, Dave. Obviously, you've got other things uh, you've got to go and do. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, though, to for your comments about the way the way things are going at the moment politically in your country. That first of all, I wondered what you know here. Uh, obviously, the view we have of President Trump is very much through a filter of well, a very hostile media. I mean, so, what's new? But we I just all want- saw the balloon. <laughs> I exactly. I just wondered what, what your view is of the way that he's handling the crisis at the moment. And, and also for that matter, you know, what do you see happening in November? I mean, because I saw a, a poll recently which showed Biden about 10 points ahead. Uh, you know, is that an outlier or is that actually happening
1: yeah, well, first off, to the to the poll point, I mean, every single poll I think in America had Hillary Clinton winning. So I, I wouldn't get too hung up on polls and I, and I certainly wouldn't get too hung up on them. You know, this money months out from the election mm-hmm. very quickly on Biden. I mean, look, the sad thing with Biden, and I don't mean this to be glib or or funny in any way, it's like no. the guy's having major cognitive problems. We all know it. We all can see it. He's having trouble finishing sentences. Many of us have dealt with this, all right? My my grandmother, who passed away a few years ago, had dementia. I know what that's like. I'm not saying he has dementia, but there is something going on there, mm. and the media is running cover for him. Where it's it's what I described as fake news before. In that, if you never talk about something that we can all see, it makes average people go, "Oh, you're, you what else are you lying to us about?" So what I what I'm concerned about with Biden is that they're they're sort of covering him right now. Yeah, yeah and they're they're dragging him to to get the nomination but anyone that votes for Biden the unfortunate truth is what you really have to understand is you're most likely voting for the vice president mm-hmm. you are not voting for that person and that's just a sad fact it is not a reflection of how i feel about biden or anything else so that that's biden as far as trump look i think a lot of people wanted a panther in a china shop a couple years ago we wanted this panther to walk in and be kind of cool and calm and with its tail to knock a piece of china off and then walk out the back door close it and let everything be but there's no such thing as a panther in a china shop right you get a bull in a china shop and that's what trump is he walked in he kind of wrecked everything and now things are sort of being rebuilt Mm -hmm. so i did not vote for trump last time I, i voted for gary johnson who was the third party libertarian candidate and by the way i'm in california where I had the luxury of making a decision like that, because it was going to go so, so heavily for Hillary, no matter what. Um, But I would say, short of absolute economic collapse, short of, you know, a true Great Depression kicking in, which by the way, is not completely unfathomable. I mean, we have 25 million people unemployed right now. I mean, we have we have major problems. Uh, But short of that, I think Trump probably wins. And I think he probably wins pretty big. I, I think, I think, in effect, what's happened here is that the average person who's watching this, we're watching Democrat states like California do crazy lockdowns right now, and it, as opposed to just having honest conversations with us about how to reopen. And I can't say that I don't think any of that has to do with the fact that they want to hurt Trump. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, Republican states like Texas are opening up, I think, today or tomorrow, and they'll figure out a way to do it. Um, I think people want to go back to work. I think people want to um, get their lives back together and I think that that sort of becomes a win for Trump. I also think Trump was very hard on Russia, be- uh, sorry on China before this. I think that obviously becomes a win. Yeah, I think yeah. the Second Amendment, I think the Second Amendment stuff, the, the gun stuff, becomes more of a win for Trump because people are thinking, well, the whole system seems a little crazy. Maybe I should be able to defend yeah, myself. Yeah, I think yeah. that becomes a win for him. Yeah. I also think the border stuff, You know, where the Democrats are sort of more open border or it's very unclear what they want. Trump does want a border. You may not like the wall. You may not like the way he talks about it. But I think that becomes a win, too. So, again, that's all sort of separate from his personality and the Twitter and everything else. Um, But my sense is that short of something truly catastrophic, which, as I said, anything could happen at this point, I I think Trump probably gets reelected.
0: So I think I take from that that you've you've gone towards Trump yourself much more than maybe last time.
1: Um, I I don't think he's a racist. I don't think he's a homophobe. I think he fights the media in a way that is the only way that they can be fought. I'm not going to sit here and say I think he's the most moral, greatest person ever. Politics is a really, really dirty game. Mm We all know politicians lie, and other politicians just do it while wearing a sharp suit and a really nice smile, and, and it, you know, that they, they, it seems they really love their wife. Yeah. I, I, I probably don't have time for the whole story, but I will tell you one thing, which is uh, there's a video on my channel where I talk about it, but I met Trump at Mar-a-Lago in December. Right. Uh, I had dinner with Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle, his girlfriend, and my husband and I, and Trump, he introduced, uh, Jr. introduced us to Trump, and when Trump realized that we were gay, he was thrilled, yeah. thrilled. He slapped his hands on the table. He stood up. He said, he said, I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for coming. He's, and then he said something that I probably can't repeat because of <laughs> language, but you know, in effect, he said, <laughs> he said, I don't, he said, I don't give a shit and I don't think anyone else gives a shit and I don't yeah. think they've given yeah. a shit for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, my husband had a nice chat with Melania. I had a nice chat with, with Trump and, you know, again, I don't think he's perfect. I think the system is is wacky. Um, But we don't have great options right now. So, you know, it would be crazy for me to say, oh, well, I'm absolutely voting for him right now. It's like, I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you again in the fall. And we can discuss it as we get a little bit closer. But I don't have major problems with him in light of the way he's dealing with what I think are much bigger problems related to the media and the rest of the things that we've been talking about here.
0: Well, Dave, uh, you, you mentioned your husband, by the way. There, you, uh, am I right thinking you're, you're sort of going for a family, aren't you, at the moment? Or is that right?
1: We we just settled on our surrogate. It's a strange time to decide that you're going to expand your family in the yeah. middle of a pandemic. But yes, we we are doing that. Okay.
0: Well, look, all the very best. Dave, I do want to thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, it's, what, it's about eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, isn't it there? I think
1: it's, it's eight a.m., but I had my coffee and, uh, you know, they always they always tell me there's this idea in America. Oh, you have to watch out for these U.K. journalists because, you know, they're always trying to get you. Oh, they are. Uh, but I've, are they, and I know that often they are. But I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Peter. Well,
0: thank you very much. And um, the book again is Don't Burn This Book by Dave Rubin. It's out now. It came out this week. Um, thank you very, very much. Dave. Thanks very much for watching. And uh, we shall see you next time on. So what you're saying is, please do remember to subscribe, won't you? Thank you.
1: Bye.